Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11. This is the very Word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we ask that according to your great mercy, even this morning, that you would continue to lead us in worshiping you, that we would worship you in the hearing of your word, that we would worship you as we hear testimony to your Son, Jesus Christ, the Incarnate One, that we would worship you even by your own Spirit as your Spirit fills us. We pray that the triune God would be glorified this morning, And we ask, Holy Father, that you would actually minister to us through your Spirit even now. Father, we we do ask that you would help us to cherish and recognize your great mercy toward us this morning. Lord, you have given us what we do not deserve and you have refrained from judging us in the ways that we do deserve. We thank you for the peace and order in which we live, the fact that we can gather here without harassment, that we can worship you together with the saints, even with our children amongst us. Lord, these are gifts to us, and we thank you for them. We thank you for your word and for your spirit, and that your word and spirit is a gift to us. We don't deserve it. We have not earned it, and so we thank you for blessing us in this way. Lord, there are many amongst us who are are feeling the load of great struggle, even as they have 
come to church this morning, they're, they're struggling. They, they have things on their, on their minds and hearts, whether they're financial struggles or health struggles or relationship struggles. Lord, they are weighed down by these things. I pray, Lord, that your mercy and grace would be upon them this morning, that they would recognize that you actually are the burden bearer, that they can actually cast all their cares and burdens upon you, and you are sufficiently strong to bear them all. Lord, we pray for the advance of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to which every person in this city, in this nation, and in this world is obligated to believe, and yet they refuse to believe, they are in rebellion. But we pray for its advance. We pray that people would be saved, saved from the wrath to come. We think of our sister church in Cochrane, Grace Cochrane Church. We pray for that work. We ask your mercy and grace upon Pastor Jeff Jones as he preaches there and for the saints who are gathered there in Cochrane this morning. Lord, we pray that you would, you would cause that church to grow strong and to, to flourish and to be a great gospel witness there in that town. We also thank you, Lord, that you have blessed our church with strength. We don't even deserve this strength, for we are weak in ourselves, but you have given us strength and stability, and you've caused many people to come to our church, even as we have welcomed in these new members. This is a blessing to us, Lord. We thank you for bringing others to support us and encourage us in the faith, to encourage us in the race. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to preserve our unity around the gospel, that we would confess the truth of Jesus Christ, that we would worship you in an acceptable way, and that you would guide us to that end. And Lord, as we are a church that is situated in a certain place, we do pray for those authorities that you have set over us, whether the parliament in Ottawa or the legislature in Edmonton or even our own city council here in downtown. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant to us to live peaceable lives even in these authorities that have been ordered and yet lord they are accountable to you for all their actions lord we thank you for your mercy to us and grace this morning even in this christmas season we pray as we consider jesus christ this morning that you would in fact show us christ even by the eye of faith Come and help us now. Work in us and give us eyes to see even the risen and glorified Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're like me, at Christmas time, it's, it's a time to, to get back into all of these Christmas carols. Uh, and they're, they're, most of them are, are Christmas hymns, except maybe, you know, Elvis Presley's Blue Christmas or something like that, uh, Santa Claus is coming to town, that kind of thing. But you get into these Christmas carols, and, and, and there get to be these favorites. And for me, I like even, there's certain phrases 
and certain lines in some of these hymns that, that I just like to hear because they're out of the ordinary. They, they kind of stir my thoughts. So when we sing joy to the world, the thought of this blessings that flow far as the curse is found. And, and I, we, don't, we don't talk and think about the curse, that this, this world is under a curse. And the thought that, that God's blessings could flow as far as the curse is found. Or, and I've mentioned in, in one of my other sermons, in, we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And, and I, I really like the line, O, o come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. You know, and it just has all this biblical imagery that comes together in bringing then this Savior who's going to save us. Another one is, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Charles Wesley. And there's, like with all of these hymns and carols, there's extra verses that most of the time, most churches, most people don't want to sing. Most, mostly when they don't want to sing those, those verses, those stanzas, it's because they're too theological. And they like to get rid of the heavy theology in them and get, keep the simple stuff. But this was, this was one of the more obscure stanzas that I haven't really heard sung. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power. Ruin nature, now, now restore. Now in mystic union join thine to ours and ours to thine. I don't think we've sung it here. Like I, th- that, that one. And that might have been maybe George Whitfield's adaptation of Charles Wesley. But that's good stuff. That's, that's, that's bringing together a lot of biblical themes together. So there's all these stanzas that then stick in your mind. And that's the point. That's a good... That's a good carol when the stanza sticks there. And what we just read in Philippians chapter 2 has a series of, we could call them stanzas, in a hymn. Now, Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 has been understood by biblical scholars to be something like an early Christian hymn. Now, it, as with all scholars, they can't seem to agree on, uh, on what the structure is of this hymn and so forth. And I've always been a little bit skeptical of calling it a hymn. And nevertheless, there does seem to be these, these little sections within it that we could call stanzas. And there's a theme, I think, in each of the stanzas that I want to share with you this morning as we look at God's Word. And these themes, there's basically six of them, I would say. And this is how I would break it up. There's a, there's a first, there's a theme of equality. Secondly, there's a theme of humility. Thirdly, there's a theme of nativity. You know, Christmas time. Fourth, there's a theme of integrity. Then victory, and finally, sovereignty. So equality, humility, nativity, integrity, victory, and sovereignty. Those are the, the themes. And the idea of then these stanzas in a hymn is that it would stick in your mind, that, that it would stay there, that you would know it. 
And so Paul knows this. And so as he is given that exhortation in those first four verses about how Christians ought to live in humility toward one another and ought to consider others' interests ahead of their own, it's pretty good pretty good uh, application for everybody during Christmas time. Every marriage comes under strain and all relationships are strained. It's good to think about considering others' interests ahead of your own. But how do you do that? What's the paradigm for that? And Paul reminds everybody and reminds us of Jesus Christ himself. And then he wants to get it stuck in our mind. So he says there in verse 5, let this mind be in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's wanting it to be in our minds and he's then presenting Jesus Christ. And the title of my sermon is Born in the Likeness of Men. And these are six stanzas, if you will, six stanzas of salvation. And I don't know if it's in the bulletin because I forgot to send it. Uh, so that's how my getting prepared for Christmas is going. I'm starting to forget things. Maybe you're good at remembering stuff. I'm forgetting things all over the place. But we start off with, as we see in verse 5, have this mind amongst yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we're wanting to have the mind of Christ. And so we're wanting to have key elements to get in our minds so that then when we think, we're thinking in the same patterns, in the same way as Jesus Christ Himself thought. So it's really being Christ-like in our thinking. And if I was to survey and go through all, and talk to you all, what is the source of much of your anxiety and your stress and your fears? It comes back to things that you are thinking about. The things you're thinking about in the middle of the night. The things that you're constantly, your mind keeps coming back to and it's stirring up worry in your, in your heart. It's stirring up anxiety. It's stirring up fear. So imagine then having then something else put into your mind. Even the mind of Christ. And that's what we're trying to do here. But let's look first at this theme of equality. Look at verse 6. Speaking of Christ Jesus, it says, verse 6, "...who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped." Well, this is referring, because it's speaking of equality with God, this is referring to the deity of Jesus Christ. In, in other words, Jesus is God. So, so there is no, no sense in which Jesus is somehow below God. Jesus is God. He is equal to God. He is of equal status. And of course, what this gets into then is, how is it that Jesus Christ can be spoken of with reference to God? He is equal in status. This equality, what is referred to here, is an equality be between the unbegotten and the begotten. Between Father and the Son. They are one in essence. They are of the same nature. 
And so they are equal. There is no, there's no lower level. The Athanasian Creed from the early church said this, The Father is from none, not, not made, nor created, nor begotten. The Son is from the Father alone, not made, not created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son, not made, nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. And that's basically what some theologians would describe as a Trinitarian grammar, a way of talking about the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. Charles Wesley, he understood this when he wrote, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. Now it's interesting that even as we see this equality of status, he says, though he was in the form of God, he did, he did not account equality with God, that status, it says he didn't count it a thing to be grasped. Now, when I read that word grasp or grasping, I think of Adam. What did Adam do? Adam, who was in the image of God, created in the image of God, he reached out and he grasped, grasped hold of this forbidden fruit. He grabbed it because he wanted to be like God in ways that he wasn't. He was already like God in some ways because he was created in the image of God. But he wanted to have to be like God in other ways that were not given to him. And so he reached out grasping, wanting more. Adam sought equality with God. That's what he wanted. He wanted to be at least equal with God. He wanted to be on top. Of course, the serpent, Satan, Lucifer, the great deceiver, out of pride, he wanted to seize equality with God too, and God cast him down. But Jesus, the incarnate Son, He's God, co-equal with the Father, but He didn't exploit or, or manipulate His equality. And, and in our world, our world is, isn't it, like right now, everything we read about, everything we hear about, is about the abuse of authority, the abuse of power. And Jesus, the, the Son, He held it all. He had all power, all authority, equality with God, and yet He doesn't abuse it. He doesn't manipulate it. He doesn't has to, have to hold on to power no matter what. 
as if he's as if he's some you know grand insecure being no jesus held it all but he held it and used it purely righteously and with eternal goodness and so he has he has all authority as god and he has all power and he has that equality but he didn't view it as something then in some sinister way to be either exploited or to be grasped onto. He already had it. He didn't need to aspire to it. So there's equality there. It's really important for us to see then that kind of equality, that kind of status that Jesus had. So that's what he starts off with. He's in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So that's the equality piece. But secondly, there is then this humility. Verse 7 says, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Just stop with that. Now, there's a lot of confusion with this. And this is where it kind of gets into stuff where my guess is you, you can, I can do it too, but you can get a little fuzzy on this stuff. Get a little fuzzy about Jesus. Because, okay, you, you read, okay, he, he emptied himself. Does this mean, as many people think, that God the Son gave up his deity? He gave up his godness, you know, kind of dumped his deity in a jar, you know, poured it all in there, and then set the jar on the shelf while then he goes around as a man and does all these wonderful things. And then later on, he's going to grab that deity back off the shelf when, he, when he's resurrected from the dead and you know, pours it back on him or whatever he does, however you want to go with that analogy. I don't know, it's going, going off the rails. Um, but that's, that's how people think, that he gives up his deity for a season during his earthly ministry. And that's false. No. Jesus never emptied himself of deity. Jesus is always God the Son. And from his his incarnation, he then is God the Son incarnate forever. Conceived. the, The virgin conception is then the beginning of the incarnation of the Son as He adds humanity to Himself. And yet He did empty Himself of certain things. He emptied Himself certainly of of certain expectations. He had rights and prerogatives that would make men expect, expect God to take on flesh in a certain way. Like you, you would expect him then to take on the flesh of a, of a demigod. Or to take on the flesh of an angel. Isn't that what you would expect? I know you're, you've read the Bible so you don't expect this. But if you're just coming to it fresh, that's what you would expect. If you're in the ancient world, oh, okay, if God's going to take on some form, why wouldn't he take on the form of an angel? You know, fly through the air and do all these things or probably for us today you know taking on the form of of the of the marvel superhero you know some mutant some mixture of of divinity and humanity take that form on you know so that 
that would be what we would might expect. But instead, he chooses this, this humbler incarnation. He was not incarnate then as a, a terrifying angel, but instead he emptied himself by adding to his all-powerful divine nature, he adds the form of a human being that has no power, no status, and is the lowest of the low. He adds to himself the human nature of a slave. It's interesting in the English Bibles, especially in the 20th century, they change the word for slave always to servant because it doesn't sound quite so bad. I mean, that's maybe one motive. I don't know what their motives. But what this emptying is, this humiliation, is, as Tom Schreiner describes it, it is a subtraction by addition. There's no, there's no loss in Jesus Himself, but there is something about this addition that is a humiliation. That is, in a sense, an, a kenosis. This is the Greek word for emptying. And just like, you know, you think about it in your own relationships. We can be humiliated by what or whom we are connected to. You know, I mean, you, you've got that, you know, embarrassing relative. Or, or, you know, when, you know, the mom is in at church or in the mall or something and the kids are just going wild and are like, no, they're not related to me. I don't know whose kids those are. Because you're embarrassed by association. You know, or you think, oh, well, this church is really, really weird. No, no, I don't go to that church. You want to disassociate yourself from what is weird. You know, you want to, you know, you, you suddenly, you know, don't want to be associated with that bad hockey team, Flames fans. Think of your associations. Well, here God the Son humbled Himself by vol voluntarily choosing to add to Himself a second nature, adding to Himself the form of a slave, which is a humiliation by association. And the simple fact, I think about this, why is it that people refuse to follow Jesus Christ. You've got all the theological explanations. But on a practical level, many people refuse to associate with Jesus simply because they don't want to be associated with humiliation. They don't want to be humiliated by being connected to Him. The writer to the Hebrews makes the point when he says Jesus suffered outside of the camp, and it's a place of humiliation where Jesus was crucified. A place of uncleanness. A place that is disgusting. And yet we are called, the writer to the Hebrews says, we are called to go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach that He endured. And some people just simply do not want to associate with that humiliation. I think there's lots of people that 
It's, it's the, and, and it might be the case for you, you're sitting here, you're not refusing to come to Christ because you think it's false. You might in your mind even check the box and think, yeah, I think this is correct, but you're refusing because you don't want to be teased by your friends and family. And it's just as, as banal as that. You don't want to be teased for being a Christian. It's embarrassing to be a Christian. Certainly, if I was to ask the kids here and the teens and the young people, what's the greatest, greatest you know, reason why you're having difficulty to follow Christ? It is literally that peer pressure. It's embarrassing to be one of the Jesus freaks. And yet, how beautiful then is this stanza on humility. God takes on human nature, this humiliation by association. And then he goes further than that by taking on the form of a lowly slave. Not not taking on automatically the recognized king, the recognized Hercules superhero. That's what the Greeks would have expected. He didn't even take on then the exaltation of King David in his function coming and going to clear everybody out. Instead, he comes in such humility like a slave. If there's anything all of us balk at, it's to being treated like a slave. And yet Jesus chooses this. This is then His humility. But look further then to the third thing, which is His nativity. Again, in verse 7, in the latter half, we see, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is, this is the, the Christmas miracle. Born in the likeness of men. And when we even just looking at that phrase, born in the likeness of men, it has a number of things that it communicates to us that are very relevant to us. The first, and I think I mentioned this a couple Sundays ago, the first is just the simple fact that only a woman can give birth to a son. And so the question is, what is a woman? Is actually very relevant to what you believe about Jesus Christ. Only a woman can give birth to a son. It is, if you want to use the sloganeering, it is definitely pro-life and pro-natalist. It's the goodness and value of children. And in a society where increasingly children are viewed negatively, children are viewed as being kind of a a pull and a drag on society, we have to see, no, this is a very positive message, at least for the idea of having children, that a woman is the one who gives birth to a son. Binary sexes. The woman does not give birth to generic child number one. Right? Maybe that's where you're reduced to with your kids. You know, what was your name again? Oh, yeah, you're number two, yeah, as opposed to number four, or in this church, number six, you know. But this is not anti-life. This is not 
in our current culture where, where there's this sense of people not liking the idea of adding one more body to our world. Adding someone who could breathe on you or someone who could eat your food. You know, it's interesting, if you think about Adam, Adam actually brought this anti-life curse upon mankind because he brought death to all by his disobedience. And nevertheless, as Wesley put it in that same Christmas carol, again, not one, not one that I think we sing. He, he sings this. He says, Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Remarkable. That's what's happening. We all bear this stamp of the first Adam. But what we need is the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who is born in the likeness of men. We need His image stamped upon us, causing us to be reinstated into His love. And even as Paul said, Paul used even this this idea when he said he said to the to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4 again it's a one of the ones I preached at Christmas time in the in the past Galatians 4 4 when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons not sons as the way not a son as the way, in the way that Adam was but now adopted sons and daughters in the sonship actually of Jesus Christ and he says because you are sons God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, it's remarkable. Jesus takes on this this slave status in order to provide a way so that men and women can be stamped with his image, the image of the second Adam, and actually then can be given the privilege of sonship and removal from their own slavery to sin, their own slavery to belonging to the first Adam. So that's the nativity. That's what's all bound up in all the the Christmas hoopla, is actually the arrival of the second Adam, born in the likeness of men. But we see then then the fourth, fourth stanza, if you will, Back in Philippians chapter 2, it says, verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of course, this is humility again. This is definitely speaking of his humility. But the central point of this stanza is the integrity of this slave. That's actually the point. Because it's one thing to be born a slave. It's another thing to be a perfect 
slave. And I don't think there's anybody here that if I was just to kind of ask you quickly, do you aspire to be a perfect slave? That you'd say, oh yeah, yep, yep, that's me. I want to be a perfect slave. No, no. What's our anti-authoritarian age? What would we say? I don't want to be a slave. Yeah, yeah. What about being a perfect slave of Christ? Then, Then to aspire to that. Well, that's what's going on here. Where we see the actual integrity of Jesus Christ because we see, first of all, we see His sincerity. The sincerity of Jesus as a slave. Look, He humbled Himself. This is what marks out a good slave. One who humbles himself. The slave who is going to you know, exert his pride toward his Lord and Master, that kind of slave would not be a good slave. No, he, he humbled himself. But Jesus was more than, than simply a humble, sincere slave serving God. Jesus also had, with his sincerity, he had what I, was the, I think the theme of this stanza, he had integrity. He had integrity. And why do I say integrity? Because Jesus exercised a pristine obedience. Pristine. He obeyed to the nth. That means not only was he never transgressing, being disobedient that way, that also means that he never, ever neglected anything that was demanded of God. See, that's the tricky part. When you were in church for a while, you get informed more and more. Don't do that. So you're like, okay, I won't do that. But the trouble is, there's, there's various things you're commanded, do this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Guilty, guilty as charged. I don't do it all. I omit all that I could do towards God. Sure, you might avoid the transgressions, but but I'm not giving myself completely to God. I omit. This is why we confess our sins every Sunday. Because it's not like, oh yeah, well, you know, 30 Sundays out of the year, I've got something to confess. And then, you know, the other, you know, the rest of them, I, I don't really have anything to confess. No, no, you've got stuff to confess. Because your omissions are always there. And yet Jesus has this integrity, this pristine obedience, because he humbled himself. How? Verse 8, by becoming obedient to the point of death. See, this is where we've got to have a bigger view of Christ than just the Christmas story. Because Jesus' humility is not expressed merely by being born in the feed bunk, in the manger. It's the humility of being a slave and always obeying, never transgressing, never neglecting. 
You know, Calvin expressed the disposition of the slave, even referring to a Christian servant of God, a slave of righteousness. He, he has this motto, some of you may, may know it, he's got a kind of motto, you can get, see it on uh, seals of his. He said, my heart I offer to you promptly and sincerely. I mean, that's, that's the, I mean, some of you who are employers, you'd love to have employees whose motto was, yep, promptly and sincerely. It's like, oh, if only I get them to act a little more promptly. And then when they do it, they're, you know, their mind's somewhere else. No, sincerely. Promptly and sincerely. That's Jesus' obedience through it all. Pristine obedience. And yet, even that's not enough. Because he had to obey how, how much? How far? How far does this go in this, in this slavery, this servanthood to God, this full obedience to God? How far? Well, we see there, and you know it, verse 8. Becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. See, Jesus had to go to the cross. And this expresses then the sufficiency of this work. It's the integrity of obedient sacrifice that was absolutely necessary. He had to go to the cross. He had to be punished as the substitute for sinners. But he couldn't be the substitute if he had no integrity. You know, the Old Testament law it outlawed bringing lame lambs or lame animals to sacrifice to God. They had to be lambs without what? Without blemish. And this is the thing. Jesus had to render this obedience without blemish. No blemish on the record. And so that, that then shows... The sufficiency, it's enough then. It's good enough. And he had to go to the nth degree for it to be enough. He couldn't pull up short. He couldn't pray in the garden, you know, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. He, he couldn't have then at that moment have said, uh, I'm not even going to ask about letting this cup pass from me. I'm just going to let it pass. I'm just going to quit. I've had enough. Well, then, then anything he would have done would not be sufficient because it would have no integrity. Jesus had to go to the cross. He couldn't be the Lamb of God if he wasn't the slave of righteousness. And that's why then Paul, he has that phrase, even death on a cross, to kind of trigger in our minds in this stanza how costly is this integrity because and it's lost on us the cross was monstrous the cross was a horror and a terror the cross was horrific not only and we we can go through all of the all of the archaeological and historical data about 
the role of the Roman cross in Roman society, in Jewish society, and the way that it was viewed as rendering anyone who even touched it as, as ceremonially unclean, or the way that in polite company in Roman society, the cross was a swear word. You just couldn't even say it. It was a cuss word. It was so disgusting. But it was the place, in this instance, when Paul is referring to even death on a cross, he's not referring to just simply Roman crucifixion, but that the fact that the cross is the place where cosmic cursing came upon Christ. And he received it. Cosmic cursing against sin. The culmination of the curse on Adam and on all of mankind after him, that culmination upon Christ for the sins, the moral criminality of all his people. So, of course, it's not just the monstrosity of the the nail prints in his hand and his feet and his stabbing in his side. It's not just that. The, the ripping of his flesh from his back. It's not just that, but it's the cosmic curse. But it's in that place. At the cross. Then we see the death of the servant in all pristine integrity. It's a remarkable thing then to see him there. Even death on a cross. So we see his equality, his humility, his nativity, and his integrity. But all of that would be for naught if there was no victory. It would all be for naught. It would all mean nothing. Just one more religion with a dead guru. But it that doesn't end there because it says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is beyond, that is above every name. This is a theology of triumph. This is the victory. Exalted. An exalted name. A name, a heroic name. It is the language of victory whether throughout the Roman world when there would be a, when there'd be a general who would conquer, when he conquers, he would be given a new name. He'd be given this title generally associated with what he had, he had, uh, he had won. And so, for example, there was a, there was a Brit later on even there's a British sea captain who won a battle near, uh, near the Nile River, you know, in, uh, off the coast of Egypt. And so his name is Horatio Nelson. So he was, he was known as Horatio Nelson, the Lord of the Nile. And, and they give these then honorific titles because of their victory. He, that, that victor is exalted then and bestowed with this name. How could, he, how could he have this exalted name? How could that be bestowed on him? How could he receive the name if he's dead? 
Well, of course, he, we know God raised him from the dead. He, he was risen from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And so the result is we have to recognize that this exalted and, and highly named Christ, that God has exalted to a name that is above every name. We saw last night, if you were here for the Christmas concert, that at the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus is the one who would save his people from his sins. We've got all of that. We've got all this exaltation, all this victory. And you, you might be sitting here and thinking, these are just ancient facts. This is just okay. Here's some historical stuff. There's people come here week in and week out, and they listen, and I try to get inside their head. I try to figure out what's going on. Why do they sit here week in and week out, come to church, and yet they don't believe in this Christ? They're not repenting of their sins. And I try to figure out, well, why is that? And you must think that these are ancient facts, and yet it's all very interesting, but it's irrelevant. But see, if this Christ is the victor who God has set his name above every name, then you, every one of you, is obligated to pay attention to him. And every person you meet in this city, and every family member, and every child, and everyone is obligated to pay attention to him. You can't say, oh yeah, well that's that's, that's good for you. Me, I don't have to pay attention to it. I've got other stuff I'm paying attention to. No, no, if his name is above every name, you are obligated to look to him. All must heed. All must serve. This is his victory. His name is above every name. I mean, you can go through the names today, the names that you're paying attention to, the names that come across your Twitter feed, your Facebook feed, whatever, Elon Musk name that's running around, or Justin Trudeau, or whoever it is, whoever is the name that's in front of you all the time, Messi. Only a few people laugh. Nobody's, nobody's watching the World Cup except for Gavin. I mean, he's, he's like, Gavin's saying, don't tell him about the World Cup score. He, he's, I'm sure he's got it recorded. He's going to go watch it afterwards. All these names that seem so important to us, we pay attention to them. But the name of Christ, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That is, that is a theology of triumph, of victory. But it's not just temporary. You know, team wins the Stanley Cup or wins the World Cup or, you know, whatever they win. And then, oh, year passes, two years pass. Well, who, won? who won back then? It's forgotten. The victory's forgotten. There's no abiding victory. There's no, no abiding supremacy there's no abiding sovereignty and yet that's what we have verse 10 the point is that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father 
See, this church, we like to talk about believing in the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And then what that gets into, what people reduce that to, is they think then it's just some kind of an abstract control that God has. That, that He controls all because He's God. And, and certainly, He does control all. But it, what it fails to recognize is the sovereignty of God that we affirm. The sovereignty of God that is spoken of here is a sovereignty of achievement of recognition, a sovereignty of acknowledgement, the sovereignty that has a right to your full attention always for eternity. You see, even the damned and the demons, even they will acknowledge Christ's lordship. Not savingly, for they've missed their opportunity. The damned have missed their opportunity. They've had opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent, to flee from the wrath to come, and they didn't take it. And so they die and they go to hell damned. But they will acknowledge. They will acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ as the one who has judged them, who has cast them into hell for eternity. They will see and know that it is the Christ child who is the heir of David, the risen Lord, He is the one who has cast them down in judgment. That's why it is not just in heaven and on earth, but under the earth. But the question then on His sovereignty that caps off this remarkable humiliation by association that the Son takes to Himself by by becoming incarnate, that sovereignty then presses on each person here. It presses on each young person, each kid, each elderly person. It presses on all of us today. It presses on us to recognize that we are obligated, that our tongue is obligated to express the feeling, the knowledge of the heart that we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, He came as a slave. Yes, He had integrity as a slave. Yes, He did it all to the point of death, even death on a cross. But now He is exalted. He is Lord. And you are obligated. Not just invited. Had a guy a number of years ago, he criticized me. He said, you know, you, you speak of people being summoned to Christ rather than merely invited. Well, an invitation seems like, you know, it's, it's, it's optional. You can come or you don't have to come. You know? And that's how a lot of you think of it. You've been invited to come to Christ many, many times. And you're just like, yeah, nice, nice invitation. Nice to, nice to be asked, right? It's like you're saying to, you know, half of the Christmas parties you're, you know, being invited to. Oh, thanks, but no thanks. I'm too busy. I'm too busy for Jesus. It's nice to be asked. No, you're summoned. You're obligated. You have, in a sense, there's a sense in which you have a duty as being a created being to give your life 
to Jesus Christ, to submit to him and confess, to own the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. The same description as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brought Israel out of Egypt, Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. He is Lord of all. And when we confess Jesus as Lord, the one who is begotten of the Father, then it brings all glory to the unbegotten Father. It brings all glory to God the Father. And how can you do that except by the Spirit who is proceeding from the Father and the Son? Friends, this is the key thing. Even for the Christian believers here, you are letting yourself get distracted away from the demand of the attention even to Christ the Lord, to have His mind be among you. And so I urge you, let the stanzas, let the refrains, the refrains of these carols, the refrains of Philippians 2, bring you back and give your full attention, your faith, to Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you've never done that before, then you are obligated to do so today to turn from your sins and look to Christ as your Savior today. Let's pray together. Holy Father, receive our worship, flawed as it is, but receive it because of Jesus' pristine obedience and the integrity of His accomplishment of everything as a slave of righteousness so that he could be the Lamb of God. Help us then to submit under his sovereignty, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.